Be part of an innovative fine arts community immersed in a top research university. Carnegie Mellon University's School of Music's world-class vocal department constantly works at the cutting edge of musical art forms. CMU performance faculty are creating projects that leverage musicians' skill sets in unique and applicable ways. Students are challenged to think outside the box as they engage with non-traditional performance spaces, collaboration with electronics, and improvisation, alongside a robust program of traditional studies, languages, recitals, and operas. To learn more about Carnegie Mellon University and to apply, visit the link in the show notes of this episode. This is So Lit Song Lit, a production of Cincinnati Song Initiative, where we reimagine the repertoire by introducing less familiar art songs through sound clips and lively discussion. I'm vocal coach Ellen Rissinger. And I'm soprano Tony Marie Palmertree. Join us as we explore this exciting repertoire. So Lit, So Lit, reimagining the repertoire. In this episode, we are talking about Le Chevalier de Saint-Georges, Joseph Bologne. And we have New York-based conductor Tyson Deaton, who is compiling his songs. Exciting. So talk to us about this process. I mean, how did you get your hands on this music? You're working for the manuscripts, right? Uh, yeah, we're the, the manuscripts that we have. Wow, where to start with this? I was approached by a soprano. Actually, we started talking about just creating program. And we started talking, of course, about classical period music. Mozart came up. She sings a lot of Mozart as well. And, you know, everybody does Mozart songs. And we were trying to find something that sort of fit in that slot. And I said, have you ever heard of this composer? And she said, well, I've heard of him. I've never heard any music. And so you, we both started doing a little bit of research and the things that are out there, mostly um, instrumental. And at that point, you know, you look up the Wikipedia article, and the Wikipedia article says there are over 100 songs. Where are these things? And so you do some research, and you figure out that nothing is commercially available. And through some time of research and a little bit of money, I got them all. The interesting thing, most of them are not in his handwriting, and so there's a lot of detective work as to what the texts are, who the copyists were, I think I've tracked down probably two of them. But you know, the French the French publication system at that time, there wasn't really a system. <laughs> and it was absolute disaster. So it it was just whoever would write down whatever they wanted to, and it was theirs, apparently. Right. And this was also the time period where they didn't necessarily put the text exactly under which uh which pitch they wanted the text. They would just put the entire text and you would have to figure out how to parse the text out with the music, right? Right. And some sometimes things are kind of written in where they're supposed to go. Sometimes they're in the margins at times. The the other kind of interesting thing is you'll you'll find a poem and you think, oh my God, I finally found this thing. And it won't have an author. <laughs> so you have to then dig more and see if you can find an author before you say that ah, this is unknown or it's been around for hundreds of years or however long. And then the question then becomes, is this something that is in fact from the 15th century, or is it something that someone from the 18th century has put together to sound like it's something from the 15th century? 
it's, it's, it's a lot of consideration. So this is roughly the same time period as Mozart, right? Yeah, give, yeah, he's he, about 10 years difference on either way, yeah. Okay, so when we start recitals, we tend to use something early-ish or Mozartian, and Mozart has a few songs in French, but most of the repertoire that we have for him in a concert setting is Italian or even in German, but this would be a treasure trove of French language. Oh, a treasure trove of French music. It, a veritable treasure trove is, is, is modest. We have a couple of songs that we can focus on just to give us a taste of what these sound like. And the first one that I have in my iPad <laughs> is the Complainte de Marie Stirard. That's one of the more interesting ones, isn't it? It feels, when it starts, like a Mozart concert aria. Yeah. That's... I think the impression that he was going for is, is this very dramatic kind of aria-esque. There are other settings of this, by the way, this very poem. I think that maybe Martini Foucault wrote one. I want to say that Martini is another one that wrote. You can look those up. Those are, those are available. You can find those. Okay. This one I've never been able to find either the tune nor the, uh, uh, the particular setting of this text in any kind of way other than those other two. So this okay. has to be, I believe, an original composition of some other. Cool. And when I say that it feels like a concert aria, I mean, it starts out big, it starts out bombastic. The orchestra, or in this case, the piano, is playing the melody that the singer is about to sing. And it feels, in some ways, it feels very much like what we expect from this time period. And in other ways, I feel like it, it kind of goes slightly off the beaten path because it is suddenly French and not German or Italian, which is what we're used to in this time period. Exactly. And, you know, one of the other things that sort of comes to mind, too, is the, um, the very beginning is in octaves. And so likely it was not a harpsichord that's written for. It was likely a forte piano uh, for that reason. Um, so it was, it was, you know, that different sound that he was kind of going after that was being experimented with in various ways. We can just say that. Gives a little bit of a different texture, and the busy work that happens in the sixteenth notes are much different than a harpsichord. Which, you know, while a harpsichord would provide somewhat of a harmonic basis, it's it sounds a little bit more like noise than, for instance, uh, a forte piano would. Yeah, oddly enough, I feel like a harpsichord is more percussive. Right, I think that that's kind of what he was going after. All the keyboard works. I know that some of them have done done recordings with um, harpsichords, I don't really think that that's right in all cases. Some of them lend themselves to the harpsichord. This one does not. This one absolutely does not, and nor does the text lend itself toward that. Yeah, there's too many notes. Uh, as someone who's had to play the harpsichord before, I wouldn't be able to actually play the, the octaves in the way that it's written on a harpsichord. It just wouldn't work that way. No, and by the time you get to the last page, it's it's all this stuff you have to do either some very quick finger substitutions or you're, you're kind of in your own way in a lot of ways make it very very difficult it's strophic too which i found really interesting 
yes many of these songs are it's funny with this piece because if you look at the other the other settings that exist they are also strophic actually like mozart like like a lot of others it was just kind of the the idea that each strophe would be ornamented in some way or you would find a different possibly tempo or um some other kind of affect that you would use to try to try to supplement the text yeah i remember doing a schöne müllerin in a master class once and the student said to the master teacher, well, but this is forte. And the master teacher said, well, that was for the first verse. Right. So when, when you have these strophic songs, it's important to use every verse and change things up and change the dynamics, change the colors, go from the text, rather than trying to impose all of the strictures from the first verse and, and basically do every verse exactly the same way. Absolutely. I could not agree more. It's an exercise in creativity with what's there. I mean, and that's that I think is essentially the, um, the art of it. And I think that this, this type of repertoire, particularly the classical repertoire in general, and I think this is why so many people try to get students to learn Schubert, because you have to use your imagination more. And this, this whole, this whole era is just all about imaginative thinking and how to look outside the box and try things that you normally wouldn't be able to try if you were uh, you know, necessarily in like an operatic setting, because so much of that is so much of that is prescribed for us. There's not a lot that so much that can be done in that context because you're dealing with a different kind of space and you're dealing with different instruments. And whatever. Yeah, I find these songs very accessible. And my first thought was, I wish that these were my first introduction to French song and the French uh, language. Because I feel like uh, singers, especially students, would feel like they have a better grasp on both of those things if this was their introduction. Yeah, I mean, when you start with somebody like Fauré or Debussy, by the time you, you start with Debussy, the, the rhythms can be complex, the mm. chords can be kind of bonkers sometimes, yeah. um, and it can make it a little more complicated. But to pare it down to this, it's it makes it a much easier introduction. Sure does. Exactly. Yes. And so you can, and, you know, what do you want to fight against? That's always what I ask the singers, the singers that I work with, the younger ones. You know, what do you want to fight against? Do you want to fight against learning the piece or do you want to fight with the language? And most of them need to fight with the language a little bit more than they need to fight with the music. Yes. So, again, you know, it's, it's like you said, I, um, I would rather, I would rather this be an introduction. You know, it's not so advanced in terms of the, in terms of the musicality or the uh, musical language, the vocalism in some of these are more advanced, of course. Mm -hmm. And I think even more than the ones that I sent you, there are some that are a little bit even harder than that. But as a first French song, these are almost perfect. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And they're still very satisfying to sing. We're not losing that part of it, just like... When we sing Mozart, we appreciate Mozart for, for what it is. Mm -hmm. Right. And the, I think also one of the great things about these songs, and I forget how many verses some of these have, but <laughs> some of the songs in the entire collection have, you know, six, eight, 12 verses, 15 verses. Wow. So <laughs> there, there's, a, there's a lot of text there, it, but 
within that there is also a lot of flexibility you want to tell the story so you generally want to start and do the first verse and the last verse and then you can pick and choose which story you want to tell and so that's part of the creativity too exactly well and he has a setting of Dans un bois solitaire which was also set by Mozart because you could sing this setting, you could sing the other setting, you could compare the two. Right. And, you know, I think that in and of, in and of some of these uh, songs themselves, some of these texts, you know, are kind of important texts. Delaclos, for instance, wrote Dangerous Liaisons, that, you know, famous, was a you know, movie when I was a kid and, you know, obviously a novel, a French novel. And what a better set of poetry for some young composer to write their first French song or experiment with a French language. So right. This is also a resource for people who want to study, study that style too. And as you know, and we kind of talked about earlier, and we've talked about over the period of the last two years about, um, you know, is text setting and how this, how this time period, particularly with a, and you know, talk about the final E in French, whether it's voiced or unvoiced, or how that fits in the poetry and the time period, um, and study what this time period is as opposed to Faure, or even later Poulenc, or someone like that, and how they dealt with that peculiarity of the French language. Yeah, and when you brought up De La Clos, the song that we have with a, with a setting of his text is En Vain des Torments, and this one is stormy, it's very minor. Uh, I don't really know how else to explain it other than that it feels really stormy and really strong. What other songs do you know that start with essentially octaves that are closing in on one another like that? It's like the whole world is closing in on you. Right? <laughs> and then after all of this big, crashy, bombastic stuff, I finish out and the singer comes in alone and I pull out for two beats and you're all by yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And so the, the, question, the question then for someone who is studying this song, and I'm pulling up this score in front of me so I can actually speak with some authority on this, um, you know, these big crunchy chords in the beginning, you know, do you want to come in right away or do you want, do you want that moment of that breath before? Then that's, that's, you know, where the art of the art song comes in. How much time you want to take, you know, want to, do you want to take a, a dramatic breath between words or how, how you know how, exactly how do you want to do this you really kind of have to put on your corset and your and your wig and your <laughs> high heels and kind of figure out figure out what this character is and how you want to play them right put yourself right in the middle of dangerous liaisons so you can put on your little your little fake mole 
<laughs> and parade around the house. Well, we did have a pandemic, so I'm sure people have done stranger things in the last few years. One of the more interesting things about all of this, because art song wasn't really even a concept yet. The melody wasn't even really an idea. It was not even thought of, actually. And so, you know, you have, you know, that developed later after the revolution, the Germans sort of cornered the market on that anyway. And you look at German songs from the same period, and they're kind of like, oh, that's kind of dumb with dumb poetry. <laughs> Just like some of this poetry can, can be at times, you know, it was talking about birds and symbolic meanings. And if you kind of know what those meanings of that time are, then that's a part of research too, is getting to know what those fictional characters that are kind of Commedia dell'arte characters are and, and what they all meant at that point. Debussy actually uses some of them, Foray uses some of them that right. kind of were carried over. Anyway, yeah. I one of the what I was gonna say though is one of the the more serious compositions of this period were opera, ballet, or incidental music to to uh, plays and which some of these songs are. As we are recording this interview, these are not yet published. So if they are published by the time we put the, the episode out, we will be putting the information such as we have it in the show notes. Once it is published, we will obviously be updating that as quickly as possible. And as for level of singer for this, I loved what Tony said earlier about how this would be a much more accessible way to get into the French repertoire. So I think if you are a sophomore or a junior who's learning French, this is a great way to climb into the French repertoire without going straight to the more difficult tonal languages of French melody. Absolutely. My teacher brain automatically thought that... I will never use those other composers again as an introduction to, for students for the French song and the French language. So this will be an absolutely wonderful resource when it's published. Yeah, I can't wait. Our guest today was New York-based conductor Tyson Deaton. Musical performances were performed by Tony Marie and Ellen and recorded at the Camp Recording Studio in Elizabethtown, Pennsylvania. Purchase information for the scores discussed in this episode are available in the show notes. Please rate, review, and subscribe to help others find this podcast. Episodes drop every first, third, and fifth Thursday of the month. So Lit Songlit is a production of Cincinnati Song Initiative. You can learn more about their network of podcasts at cincinnatisonginitiative.org slash podcasts. Are you craving incredible song recitals? Are you interested in a behind-the-scenes view into professional songmaking at the highest levels of artistry? Are you looking to develop your own artistic and entrepreneurial skills as a classical musician in this ever-changing 21st century landscape? If you found yourself saying yes to any of those questions, look no further than Cincinnati Song Initiative's week-long program, The Fellowship of the Song. Taking place this year from May 19 through 26, The Fellowship brings together some of the country's brightest song performers and teachers for a week of classes, concerts, and study events. And we invite you to join us as an auditor, either in person in Cincinnati or online wherever you may be located. When you join the fellowship as an auditor, you gain instant access to the entire week's events and can go back and relive the magic through HD video recordings of each and every session. 
To learn more about this incredible new opportunity, visit cincinnatisonginitiative.org audit.